On June the 24th, 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant signed a law that established Christmas as a national holiday in the United States of America. 1870. Now, part of Grant's motivation for passing this law was to try to unite the country. You know, the Civil War was still very fresh in people's minds. Reconstruction was already beginning to unravel. Tensions between Northern and Southern Americans continued. And Grant believed that if they could enshrine some festive holidays, and in that bill not only was it Christmas, but it was New Year's Day and the Fourth of July, he thought maybe that could provide some common ground to help unite North and South and heal the wounds caused by the Civil War. After all, the most often quoted phrase from the Nativity story in the Bible says that there's going to be peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Peace on earth. Sounds nice, doesn't it? World peace. How many Miss America contestants have said they want to see world peace, right? How many young people with their heads full of dreams and their hearts full of passion have have gone out into the world trying to bring world peace. And sometimes that seems like that's all it is, is a nice sentiment, an idealistic dream. Can there ever really be peace on earth? Can the birth of Christ really bring peace to a world that according to historians, out of the last 3,400 years, the planet has only seen 268 without active war? Can the birth of Christ really bring a world like that lasting peace? Can Christmas heal the wounds of bitterness and the division that we see today in our own culture? You know, maybe establishing Christmas as a national holiday, maybe it did help bring America back together in 1870. But Christmas today only seems to highlight the cultural divide in our country between the spiritual and the secular, the conservative and the liberal, the Christian and the non-Christian. How can the birth of Christ bring our nation and our churches and our families and our communities a peace that heals and unites? Well, Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians can give us some insights. Remember, the earliest followers of Jesus were Jews. But as the church grew... And as the church followed the Great Commission and won more and more people to Christ, more and more non-Jews became Christians. Greeks, Romans, what the Jewish people referred to as Gentiles, they were becoming Christians and joining the church. In fact, Acts chapter 15 tells the story of a critical church conference that happened in Jerusalem where the apostles and the church leaders got together and tried to decide, these Gentiles, do they have to become Jewish before they can become Christian? And thankfully, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, they answered no. You didn't have to begin to adhere to the festivals and the rituals of of the Old Testament law in order to be a Christian. All you had to do was reject sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and try to live according to His way. But unfortunately, that didn't keep some Jewish believers from looking down on the non-Jewish believers. And in some extreme instances, they even persecuted them and tried to pressure them into embracing the legalism of Judaism. And in a lot of Paul's New Testament letters, he's addressing that very trend. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 
chapter 2, Paul makes the case that Jesus Christ came not only to make peace between sinful humanity and a holy God, but to bring peace between peoples as they become united as one in God's family of faith. Now, if you'll look just briefly in, in verses 1 through 10, Paul has this profound teaching that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul says that salvation is by, is by grace of God. It's acquired through our faith in God. It's not something we can earn by keeping the law. And that's true for Jews and Gentiles, for all people. But then beginning in verse 11, Paul begins to speak directly to Gentile believers, which, you know, the majority of Ephesians, since Ephesus was in Rome, is in modern-day Turkey. It was a Roman city. It's obvious he's speaking to Gentiles, to non-Jewish believers. And I want us to notice in verses 11 and 12 what he says about sin and how sin separates. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from each other. Listen to verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, and then Paul specifies, he, and I'll say more about this in a minute, that done in the body by the hands of men. He says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world. Now here in verse 11, Paul illustrates the friction that existed between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. He talks about circumcision. The circumcision was the visible sign of, of the people of Israel's covenant relationship with God. But it, it, it became a source of pride among them. So calling someone uncircumcised was a derogatory term. It was sort of like a religious slur. You'll even see in the Old Testament, you know, people say that. You know, David said of Goliath, he was an uncircumcised Philistine. It was, it was sort of a, a put-down of sorts. It was a way of saying, we're better than you. God chose us, not you, so there. And that's what these Jewish Christians were saying to the Gentile Christians. But as many Old Testament prophets preached, the Jewish people forfeited their special position with God, because while they were physically circumcised, their hearts were uncircumcised. In other words, the, the attitude of their hearts was not one of submitting to God and being set apart from the world for the purposes of God. And that's what Paul is implying here in verse 11 when he specifies that the circumcised who are trying to shame these Gentile Christians, they were only circumcised in their bodies by the hands of men. They were never circumcised in their hearts. By the Spirit of God. Their hearts were just as far from God as pagan Gentiles, in other words. But then he goes on in verse 12. And Paul shows just how hopeless the Gentiles were before salvation by contrasting them with the Jews. You see, God chose the Jewish people. He chose Abraham to be the father of a new kind of people. A people that God would call out from the rest of the world. That He would set apart from other nations to be a kingdom of priests to reflect His glory and through whom His salvation would come to all peoples. And of course, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Christmas is the fulfillment of that. Christmas is that day that He promised Abraham where someday all people would be blessed through Him. 
Yes, Israel was God's chosen people, but not at the exclusion of everyone else. See, Israel was chosen for the sake of all humanity. They were a part of God's rescue plan for the world. Their distinctiveness wasn't meant to make them feel like they were better than other people. Their distinctiveness was meant to point other people to the one true God. And they had forgotten this. So here Paul contrasts the condition of the Jews and the Gentiles to illustrate for the Ephesians just how, how significant their salvation was. To highlight the mercy and grace of God whose salvation extends to all people, to the ends of the earth. Now verse 12 for us paints a very bleak picture of just how devastating the division that sin brings to people's lives is. It, it makes us all outsiders. Sin leaves us without. That's what sin does. Sin promises so much, but it always leaves us without. First, it leaves us without Christ. That's what he says here in verse 12. They were without Christ, separate from Christ. That's the worst consequence of sin, is that it separates us from our holy, loving Creator God. Can you imagine for a moment being eternally cut off from everything that is pure and good and light and love and joy and peace? Imagine being cut off from that, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. That is our destiny apart from Jesus Christ. From the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they ate that forbidden fruit and tried to seize the glory of the Father for themselves, that has been the natural state and destiny of humanity. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Paul says in Colossians 1, 21, that we were alienated from God, enemies in our minds, because of our evil behavior. And that's why when Adam and Eve sinned, the very first thing they did was they hid from God. They hid. Sin caused a great divide between the Creator and those He created in His own image. Without Christ, we are cut off from God. That's what sin does. Secondly, sin leaves us without citizenship. Now, Paul is specifically addressing how Gentiles were excluded from the citizenship in Israel, from God's chosen people. But the reason God even had to choose a special nation to be His representative on earth was because of sin. See, originally all people were God's chosen people. We were all created in God's image. And sin not only created a divide between us and God, but it separated us from one another. Because remember, Adam and Eve not only tried to hide from God, but they hid from each other, didn't they? They were naked and ashamed. And they made fig leaf clothing a feeble attempt to try to hide their shame from one another. And they began to blame each other. And God said that one of the curses of sin was that there would be a struggle for authority in the home. And then we see brother killing brother, starting with Cain and Abel, but then later you have Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers. And the Old Testament goes on to record the tragedy of human history marked with jealousy and vengeance and hatred and shame. Sin destroys relationships and it builds walls of hostility. And even what God intends to be unifying 
we somehow find a way of turning it into a source of division, don't we? As we see happening between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians in Paul's day, and as we see even today, as churches argue and split over petty things and pridefulness, and even as we see divisiveness in our own culture from Christmas. In the book of Colossians, Paul further combats the tendency that some had to use the elements of the Jewish faith, things like the Sabbaths and the feasts and festivals and the purity customs. He talks about how they, they're using those to divide and to degrade and to demean other people. And Paul tells them to stop it. Listen to what he says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul says, don't get hung up, don't get distracted by all of the, the, the things that we think of are as important but aren't, all the trappings. Sin leaves us without citizenship in God's kingdom. It leaves us without true community. It leaves us cut off from family and from friendship as God intended it to be. That's why humility and compassion, kindness and patience and all the one another's of the New Testament, you know, love one another and bear with one another and forgive one another and bear one another's burdens, these just go against the grain of our society, don't they? It's the opposite of the way the world works because sin leaves us without citizenship. Third, it leaves us without covenants. See, God is a covenant God. That means He likes to enter into these special relationships with His creation where God makes promises, but then He also has expectations for us in return. But Paul makes the point that God never entered into a covenant relationship with any Gentile nation. In fact, the only covenant of God that Gentiles could really enjoy is the covenant God made with Noah to not destroy the world with the flood again. Now, Gentiles could enjoy the blessings of the covenant God made with Abraham because that covenant said that through Abraham and his family, all the nations of the world, all the families of the world would be blessed. So while that covenant was made with Israel, it was made for the blessings and the benefits of all people, including non-Jews. And of course, we know that blessing is the new covenant that was made available to Jews and Gentiles alike through Jesus Christ. But apart from a relationship with Jesus, we cannot have a relationship with the covenantal God of the Bible. And finally, Paul says that separation from sin, it leaves people without hope and without God. It leaves us without hope because the ancient world, you know, the ancient world was covered with a great cloud of hopelessness. Philosophies were empty. Traditions were disappearing. Religion was powerless to help people deal with life or face death. Does that sound familiar? People were walking in darkness and living in the land of the shadow of death and they longed to pierce through that veil that separated them from God. They longed to receive a message of hope, but there was no hope because they were without God in the world. Acts chapter 17 tells an interesting story about Paul. 
He was preaching to the philosophers and scholars of the day in the city of Athens. And they were surrounded by all these statues of the Roman gods and goddesses. And in their superstitious fear, they had created a statue that they said was to the unknown god. They wanted to cover their bases. Because they forgot somebody. They didn't want to offend one of these gods. And Paul declared that he knew who this unknown God was. And in fact, he really is the only God there is. All these statues of Greek and Roman gods were empty and powerless and lifeless. There is only one God. He is the maker of all things, the creator of every life, and the God who will judge the living and the dead. And it doesn't matter how religious or how moral you are, if you don't know this one true God, you are without hope in the world. And this unknown God, He might have been unknown to them, but He's not unknowable, is He? No, this is the God who reveals Himself time and again throughout Scripture. He's the God who comes down. One of the names for Jesus, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. God is near to each one of us. He longs to be found and known and worshipped and loved by everyone. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And that is why Jesus was born in Bethlehem all those years ago. That is why the angels sang to the shepherds that night, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Or as one of my favorite Christmas songs puts it, Glory be to God on high and to the earth be peace. Goodwill henceforth from God to man. Begin and never cease. Sin separates. But here's the good news. Jesus unites. Jesus unites. Look with me at verse 13. He goes on to say, but now in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a great... But now. I love that. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Peace and goodwill. It's a beautiful way to describe the reconciliation Jesus came to bring. Because He's called the Prince of Peace. Now let's look briefly at how Paul describes how Jesus is the Prince of Peace who brings goodwill. First, His peace is far-reaching. His peace is far-reaching. Paul described the Jews as being near to God and the Gentiles as being far from God. Well, why were the Jews near to God? Well, because they were the chosen people of God. The people through whom Jesus would come, Jesus was a Jew. His first followers were Jews. The Jews were the first ones to receive the gospel. But Jesus came to fulfill God's promise to complete Israel's mission to bring all people, even those who are far away, into a relationship with God. And therefore, Christ effectively abolished the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Because now all people are considered the same before God. His peace is far-reaching. Secondly, His peace is all-encompassing. See, Christ brings a peace that is vertical and horizontal. It's cosmic and it's also down to earth. Just picture the cross. Picture the cross when you think of the peace of Christ. 
Jesus brought a horizontal peace. In verses 14 and 15, Paul is saying that upon the cross, Jesus made it possible for Jews and Gentiles to be at peace with one another. And that was always God's will for Abraham's family. But the mutual animosity toward each other built up a wall of hostility that separated God's chosen people from the very people He sent them to reach. And part of that barrier was the law of Moses, which the Gentiles were never obliged to keep. And so Jesus, in His death on the cross, satisfied the law and eliminated it as a barrier. And since neither Jew nor Gentile have to obey the law to earn salvation, the, distinguish between, the, the, the distinctiveness between the two is, is gone. In Christ, that wall has been torn down. The temple veil was rent in two. You know, you remember, those of you who, who you know, were my age and older, I guess, remember when the Berlin Wall came down? Remember what, a, what, what an immense moment that was for the world? That was nothing compared to what Jesus Christ did on the cross when He brought down the dividing wall of hostility. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, the only distinction we need to make about other people is whether they are in Christ or not. That's it. For you and me, that's all that should matter. Now, we live in a culture where we are increasingly obsessed with labels. And people want to reduce us down to nothing more than your gender, sexuality, skin color, ethnicity, education level, political affiliation, and how much money you make. And that's all that matters. But for followers of Christ, all that really matters is whether or not you're a child of God. Whether or not you're a follower of Christ. That's all that matters. When you look at someone else, your main concern should be, does this person know Jesus? Is this person my brother or sister in Christ or not? If the answer is yes, then love them. Embrace them as a part of your family. It doesn't matter who they voted for in the last election. It doesn't matter where they went to school or who they pulled for on Saturday. It doesn't matter where they live or what they look like or what label is on their clothes. If they are in Christ, they're family. Amen? And if the answer to that question is no, then love them and share the gospel with them and invite them into this family of faith where they can know that Jesus Christ really was born, died, rose from the dead, and is coming back again. Amen? If we treated everyone we met as people made in the image of God, loved by Jesus, pursued by God, don't you think it would begin to change the world? Kind of like it did 2,000 years ago. He brings a horizontal peace, but He also brings a vertical peace, you see. Not only are human enemies made right with each other, but humanity is made right with God. We're no longer hostile toward God. His wrath against us has been satisfied on the cross. Jesus literally put to death on the cross our hostility with our Creator God. Yes, God's purpose includes uniting two parties at war, but as the phrase in the song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore These States, Father love is reigning o'er us. Brother love binds man to man. Jesus came to bring both. The cross destroyed human hostility, but it also destroyed the hostility between people and God. That is true reconciliation. That is the key to world peace. And I love it in verse 18, just real briefly, we see, the, we see the Trinity at work in salvation's plan in verse 18. For through Him, through the Son, we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Amen? And that one Spirit brings transformation. And that's the final one there. His peace is transformational. Let's, look at, let's close with verses 19 through 22. 
Consequently, as a result of all of this, Paul says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. And you are members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This transforming piece of Christ takes what was separate and disparate and divided and He makes us one. He makes us one nation. Look what he says there in verse 19. You're no longer foreigners and aliens. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You're one nation. And he's not talking about, you know, hey, we're Americans before we're Democrats and Republicans. No, what he's saying is the only thing that really matters is your citizenship in heaven. It doesn't matter race. It doesn't matter nationality. All that really matters for Christians is are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Because in a thousand years, that's all that's going to matter to any of us, isn't it? But then he takes it more personal, more intimate. He goes on to say, not only are you one nation, you're one family. You're one family. He says that you are part of God's household. God is your Father. Christ is your high and holy brother. And we are all brothers and sisters together. Amen? We're family. And then he takes it one more step. We are one holy temple. He changes his analogy. And he says, you know what, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. You're all stones in the same building. And you're built on a foundation. The foundation of the teaching of the apostles of Christ and the prophets of God. And you know who your cornerstone is? Who the foundation is totally dependent upon? Jesus Christ Himself. He's the cornerstone. He's also the capstone. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And it is all by Him, to Him, and for Him that we live. You know, despite President Grant's good intentions, Christmas trees and snowmen and light displays and Santa Claus, these aren't the things about Christmas that have the power to really unite us. And after all, different countries around the world celebrate Christmas in different ways, don't they? We can't even agree on the same day. Some Christians celebrate Christmas on January the 6th. The unifying, healing peace of Christmas is found only in the child in the manger who became the man that touched lepers and ate with tax collectors and forgave prostitutes, the man who died on the cross that he might destroy the dividing wall of hostility, and as Paul says in Colossians 1.20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. Amen. And to God be the glory. God's grace can give you life. God's grace can unite you with Him and with those that you might be alienated from. I invite you this morning, as we stand and get ready to sing, come let the Prince of Peace bring healing and wholeness to your life. Whatever God's Spirit is speaking to you this morning, I pray you would come in obedience. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we love you and thank you for your love for us, demonstrated to us not only on Christmas, but in the very life of Christ and His death, resurrection. Father, we thank You that Christ came to make us one with one another, to overcome all the petty things that we get so obsessed about and hung up on, to truly help us to love one another as we love ourselves, and most importantly, to help us to love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as He came to destroy the separation of sin between us and You. We pray that You would help us 
to know the Prince of Peace and to be agents of that peace. Father, speak to us, guide us in this moment and in the days to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.